0: This is an emergency Antifada podcast. Whoop, whoop. We are, uh, we're saying whoop, whoop because <laughs> <Don't> we're talking <laughs> about Detroit and the juggalos who are on a general strike.
1: Yeah, the, uh, the <laughs> uh, for many, many years now, the uh, juggalos have been salting, they've been industrializing, they've been entering into the United Auto Workers Union in order to spread what they call shaggy two-dope thought among yep. the masses
0: take down the evil boss eminem <laughs> <laughs> of course runs the fago factory yeah
1: on the other on the other side of uh, nine mile wherever the fuck that is didn't you say that uh you heard about a sympathy strike over at the fago factory that's right wow holy shit this is they're turned
0: spraying fago all over the bo- all over the, s- the pinkerton thugs and the scabs
1: i tell you the bosses they don't know what's coming to them they're going to be so fucking sticky by the end of this strike
0: as we all know, communism is the true Shangri-La. And we should be there pretty soon because yeah, the final battle between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie this has is it. begun. It has. The UAW last night, uh we were recording this on Monday. Last night at midnight, they put down their uh the things that they use to make cars. <laughs> the computer hammers the and computer
1: whatever. keyboards.
0: Yeah. And they they stopped they refused to press the button <laughs> on the robot. <laughs> We're gonna, this is going to be like deeply hateful to the workers by accident.
1: No, no, it's not going to be at all. Actually, I just want to say real quick that um, for all your listeners out there, there are very few moments uh, in your life as you live that are as important as this. As Vladimir Lenin once said, there are decades that pass with the importance of a single day and a single day that imp- passes with the importance of years. This is one of those moments Antifada listeners, whether you're in Detroit, whether you're in Ohio, whether you're in New York, L.A., Mexico, London, Bangkok, wherever you are, get on a bus, get on a train, commandeer an airplane, do whatever you have to do, but fly and ride directly to Detroit because this revolutionary situation needs you. It is important that we join this struggle not only to overthrow those pricks at General Motors, but the entire capitalist class. So we expect to see everybody there by what, tomorrow? We're going to leave in a minute, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're going to leave for Detroit right after this to uh, join the Revolutionary Vanguard. So we expect to see you all there, and attendance will be taken. We'll be going through our patrons list, and if you didn't make it to the strike, then we're not going to let you give us any money anymore.
0: Well, is this just happening in Detroit, or are there other vectors of the strike in other places.
1: My understanding is that there are about forty-eight, forty-nine thousand uh, 49,000 United Auto Workers, rank and file members on strike at the moment, and something like 50% or so live in the state of Michigan, right? The heartland of uh, the American auto industry historically and still today.
0: And so about 50,000 workers are on strike, uh, and there's also Uh, some UAW janitors are also on strike and like, a separate uh, dispute, but they're also working together.
1: Yeah, the uh, United Auto Workers is a a very interesting union. They, um organized all sorts of folks of course they started in the you know 1930s in auto that's why they're called the uh, United Auto Workers although now that they're branching out into janitorial staff and graduate students and people that work in museums maybe the United Auto Workers should do what Kentucky Fried Chicken did and you know they just changed their name to KFC so they wouldn't be you know so pigeonholed into into chicken making they should just call themselves a UAW, and it could just mean nothing. That, that mm-hmm. might make a lot of sense. But yeah, Aramark is a uh, contractor that uh, General Motors, who they're striking against, uses to do janitorial services. Apparently, they've been without a contract for a very long time. So uh, concurrent with this um, auto workers strike, there is also a janitor strike in all of these factories.
0: But this isn't just... Uh so it's not just all UAW workers. It's the, mostly the auto workers from the UAW. And,
1: and, and I think like 8,000 janitorial okay. workers who are also under that union umbrella, but they're part of a different division with a different contract negotiation.
0: So this isn't a nationwide massive strike of the largest union in the country, but it is very significant for the timing of the strike because after the crisis in 2008, GM was about to go out of business and ba- there's basically a grand bargain between the, the, the company, the workers, and the government Thanks, Obama. to have some concessions and keep everything running. The, the state bailed out GM and the workers bailed out GM. And now GM is recovered, and they're making record profits—eight billion dollars last year. They're looking good. Yeah, uh, but they're also closing factories and looking to reduce labor costs.
1: And the CEO made twenty million dollars last year, and $20 they've also—that seems low. No, that's that's a lot of money. Oh, okay. <laughs> you dick. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know, twenty million—that <laughs> seems like nothing. Well, uh, I'm assuming that that doesn't include like stock options and shit. Let's put it this way. To put a finer point on it... I feel bad for the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe he should go on strike. <laughs> It'd be like some uh, Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged shit. Uh, he can join the workers and abolish his class position as the CEO. Sounds good to me. Yeah. I mean, we don't really need CEOs on our side. Unless they abolish their class position, then they're welcome. But no, um, I read somewhere that over the last four or five years... Um, because, as we know, stock prices across the board have gone up in this, uh, the longest boom in American history, or so they call it. General Motors did something like $25 billion in stock buybacks, which means it basically decreases the number of stocks out there for the particular company, thereby increasing the value uh, and the cost of the price of those stocks and therefore making anybody who owns those stocks immensely richer. So it's been basically a sop to all of the shareholders, uh, institutional investors out there who you know have a stake in GM. It's basically pumping money directly into capitalist hands.
0: But also capitalists are interested in what's going on in the international economy, and they see that what many of us are talking about is a recession is coming, so they're trying to prepare for the recession, and the way they're going to do that is to tighten up ship a bit, close some factories, uh, reduce labor costs. So what does that mean? But they're saying that they're not going to fire anyone or lower wages. So what does that mean, that they're reducing labor costs?
1: This is um, it's a good question. Um, th- there's a lot of moving... Parts to this, and as I was online today after work, uh, I was looking around the left internet sphere to see how many people were doing serious analysis of this, and it didn't seem like many people were. They were worked up about the Working Family Party. They were worked up about Elizabeth Warren. The SNL guy. The SNL guy. Um, Socialists out there were very worked up about a lot of things, but not the UAW strike. Um, One of the moving parts to this is that there's a significant amount of overhang right now. Excess capacity in the auto industry because, as you said, sales are dropping. So when they say that workers, no worker is going to lose their job, that's because there are different factories that they could move those workers to, you know, four or five towns over because they just have all this excess capacity that they can use up uh, using the uh, current workers. The real sticking point for this, there was two of them, as I understand it. The first was that, Without Medicare for all in this country, the cost of benefits has more and more been thrust onto the back of these uh, GM workers. Um, I think at a certain point, I think around the crisis you were talking about, when the United States government bailed out GM to the tune of fifty billion dollars, workers contributed zero percent to their health care. As it is now, it's up to four percent. So if you imagine that you know four percent out of your paycheck is is you know pretty. It's a, it's a tough hit. Um, they want to uh, increase the amount that workers are going to put in that from their wage package. The other thing is um, another legacy of uh, what you saw in 2007, which was the last um, really big uh, strike. It only lasted two days, but it was kind of when this pattern of the last 12 years was set. Um, GM was very smart, and uh, they forced upon what the United Auto Workers what is often a death knell for unions. Uh, something called the two-tier contract mm. uh are you familiar with two-tier
0: yes from, I, I only know it f- from the strand uh organizing because oh I, what happened there I, all, I, all i know is not real workers like the auto workers but people <laughs> sell books and <laughs> smile when they give you their coffee and stuff like that
1: wow well, you know me andy i was uh off uh building all day today do you want to hear about my day at work doing real person work
0: yeah but what were you building
1: I was building a home depot. Yeah, it
0: wasn't a car. Oh
1: fuck you. How is that not real work?
0: Well, I mean, cars are the best. That's the that's like the classic work that you do. Listen. Everything else. Listen. Is Every You're basically in the (laughs) the distribution sector.
1: I'm in the the service sector
0: now. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, they make you put on the orange (laughs) smile when you build it, right?
1: Yeah, that's pretty much it. And uh, also they pay us in tools. So uh, that's something. So first off, fuck you. Uh, Do do not demean and degrade my work experience or my union, thank you very much. Uh, But second off, um, what the hell were we talking about? Oh, two-tier contracts, yeah. So in 2007, um, GM forced upon the United Auto Workers a massive concession, which is that all of the older workers, the veteran workers who had been there, had seniority, um, had been signed in under a very good contract that got them a uh, defined benefit pension, that got them good benefits, uh, that got them time off. They, uh, they would keep that great contract. However, anybody hired after 2007 under the new contract would be on a second tier. And this second tier I th- what I read was it, your wage in your envelope would go from $31 an hour to a new worker would be making $15 an hour, mm-hmm. whereas one of the veteran workers would have good health care, these people would have shitty health care, whereas the veterans uh, you know, would have an actual pension and retirement ahead of them, these new workers had none of that. So you have to imagine how bad this is for collective action and solidarity within a union if you've got a bunch of old-timers who've been there for 20 years who you're supposed to be like learning from and who you're supposed to be obviously like in a union with so um getting along with and working together with they've got the sweetheart deal whereas you on the other hand have a real shit deal there was a article i read today about the strike and this woman was saying that she puts the left headlight on one of these GM vehicles, and the person across from her puts the right headlight on, she's making $31 an hour, they're making $15 an hour. So obviously the bad blood and the uh, irritation and frustration that would come from having a union that 's basically divided against itself is huge, and it basically allows the companies whenever they do this to not only decrease wages over time through arbitrage you know as workers retire but it also really puts a dent in the kind of solidarity and collective action um, you know necessary in order to have a strong and uh, powerful and uh, good union with good morale. So that happened in 2007, and one of the sticking points was that the workers were trying to push back against that and make there be a pathway for temporary workers and also workers on that lower tier in order to get into that uh, the good boy tier, you know, where they make the real money with the pension, and, th- and the company won't do that.
0: And there was another uh, I guess more of a um, potential reason for the strike which was some of the corruption scandals within the UAW, and maybe the UAW is pushing this now as a way to kind of get good with the rank and file
1: uh, I don't buy that No? I mean, that, that might be part of it. Um, I don't know should I go into a historical thing and a structural thing? Do you want to hear it?
0: Uh, will that answer my question? Yeah. Okay,
1: let's do it. Um, Bernie Sanders came out with uh, something called the Workplace Democracy Act.
0: In 1935.
1: <laughs> of 1935. It was a throwback piece of legislation. Uh, of course, it isn't passed, but what it uh, w- would attempt to do if he were to push this through and you know become president and sign it, uh, one of the things it would do would mark a shift from what is labor law now where each individual um, bargaining unit, which is to say workplace, uh, comes together and um, negotiates and wins a contract, even if the company up the street might have the same union, um, even if they're not part of those negotiations. It's a workplace uh, organizing Uh, legal framework that makes it so that instead of having sectoral bargains, which is one of the things that Bernie Sanders wants to push and labor leaders have talked about for a long time, so organizing or negotiating within a a whole sector, you have what's called pattern bargaining. So there's the big three automakers, right? So there's uh, Ford, there's Chrysler, and there's GM. All three of them have their contracts up for negotiation right now. The union actually chose GM at this point in time uh, because GM has the most profits out of any of them. They made $8 billion last year. So the union chose them in this moment uh, to do it uh, because they saw it as advantageous for them in the media fight but also in terms of what they could win. And when you, s- you know, it is probably true that they're trying to get a win right now to distract the workers from the union corruption scandal and distract the media. But um, you have to understand that going back, God, fucking 80 years, you know, since at least the 1940s, within this pattern, uh, pattern bargaining regime that exists, these sort of like choreographed sort of dance between uh, the union bu- bureaucracy and uh, the management of the company, it happens, you know, every four or five, six years, depending on the industry, there will be a contract negotiation. One side will threaten the other side. Negotiations will break down. Sometimes they'll strike and sometimes they don't. But this is a mature industry, and, that's a, and what's happening now is a very, very common thing that you've seen for, like I said, 80 years at this point in time.
0: So it's all a pantomime.
1: You could say it's a pantomime. So we yeah. should
0: just stop recording right no, now and ignore no. the struggle. Okay.
1: No, no. Um, I think there's – well, I, I, I will get into what I think is interesting about this particular strike, but maybe we should go back to some of more of the details of sure. it. Sure. Um, what do you got?
0: Well, uh... Do you want
1: to talk about the union corruption thing?
0: I don't know about the union corruption thing. I do. Okay. I know the union is crooked and corrupt, and, um... Because
1: you saw, um, Blue Collar, and you listened to episode 17 of the Antifada.
0: Right, I just assumed that that fictional movie about the seventies is still accurate. Today. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, there are definitely, uh, two black guys and a white guy walking around Detroit right now in those googly eyes, uh, with the weird, like nose on them. Masks. And that notebook
0: they accidentally stole has finally come out now. Finally. In 2019. Yeah.
1: It's like the Q documents. Right. It's like, uh, Hillary Clinton's <laughs> emails. Finally, now they're out. Um, listen to episode 17, folks. Working
0: Class Goes to Hell Working with class. Virgil Texas and Matt Chrisman.
1: Matt, Matt Chrisman. This yeah. is a great episode. it was about a year ago. Yeah, it was. Yeah. That was uh, I, l- I re-listened to that recently. That was some fine Simpler work. Well done, times. everybody. Simpler times.
0: We also talked about that Michael Keaton movie. Gung Ho, <laughs> hell yeah. That was okay. lit. That was so cool. Uh, good times.
1: Yeah, good times. Uh, yeah, very much more uh, blue collar than gung ho what's going on right now with uh, General Motors and the uh, United Auto Workers. And we watched
0: House Party as well.
1: Well, we didn't talk about that on the show, we just watched it.
0: We talked about it a little bit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, what's up with these uh, corrupt union fat cats?
1: A lot of the comments now that you're seeing on social media are talking about uh, greedy union bosses, which, um, of course, is like a right-wing or just anti-union talking point, right? That the... uh, you know, the heads of the union, the bureaucracy of the union, uh, they just want your money. You know, they don't care about, uh, you know, your wages or your quality of life or the work rules or whatever. And there is an element of truth to that. But whenever you hear greedy union bosses, you know, your first instinct should be to push back and realize that as flawed as unions are, and I hope we get a chance to talk about that. Obviously, uh, the rank and file workers within the uAW don 't deserve uh, to take concessions, and they certainly don 't deserve to have their leadership be stealing money from their training fund in order to fly around the country, buy fancy champagne, new watches, and cigars um, on their members dimes, which is what happened over the last yeah, they several be years
0: taking a train uh, <laughs> labor Notes says UAW President Gary Jones may be distracted because. His house and that of former President Dennis Williams were both searched by the FBI on Ray August 28th. Mm-hmm. Jones' top lieutenant before he became president, Vance Pearson, was charged with using union funds for personal luxuries. And it's widely believed that Jones and Williams will be next. Pearson was the sixth UAW official to be recently charged or convicted of graft. Graft. Um, That's
1: a word you don't hear too often well these quote
0: days. A, uh, a UAW worker uh, named... Uh, Crawford i don 't see the first name here, uh, who says yes, the u a w is corrupt it 's disgusting beyond belief, but this is not about them it 's about us. We can and will clean house, but we have a more immediate fight on our hands right now, which is rallying the troops against gm
1: that worker, I think, has the right attitude right obviously it's uh, you know everyone 's out on the picket lines right now, and yeah, I mean, I guess it 's something they can they can deal with later. Um, the union corruption thing. Uh, very quickly, um, points to, I think, a, a real dynamic, you know, an institutional dynamic within organized labor such as it exists. In addition to those union leaders, uh, the president, and the vice president, and the treasurer, I believe, um, who were uh, raided and recently were indicted for stealing tons and tons of uh, funds from the UAW, it wasn't just them. Uh, if you dig a little deeper into the story, you also find out that three GM executives had also been caught up in the same investigation and been indicted, and one of them is serving a 15-month jail sentence. Now that makes the story a little bit more interesting, right, because it takes two to tango in this case. Uh, the union, the corrupt union leaders were hanging out with the labor management executives that they were negotiating with, and they all got caught in stealing the money. So what does that say to you? I've mentioned before on this show the kind of structural dynamic that takes place where when a union member rises into leadership, they become more and more divorced from the rank and file. You have to imagine that these guys caught up in graft. They were not sitting down they weren't down on the line with the rest of the workers right they weren't welding uh they weren't the janitorial guys you know they weren't kind of uh hanging around the rank and file all the time as the months and years of their presidency or their uh sinister went on they would spend more and more time with general motors executives and staff and when the ceo of gm's making 20 million dollars right these union greedy union bosses start to see them as their peers and not as the workers themselves. And because so much money comes in and out of, out of unions, it's an opportunity, there's many opportunities for people to steal uh, from that. But I think the important thing to note is that in their minds, it seems like they can justify that because they consider the CEO with the golf clubs and the, uh, and the Porsche to be more their sort of peer on their level than they do the actual person working down on the line. And that's a reflection, I think, of this separation between the leadership-slash-bureaucracy of the unions and the mass of the rank-and-file. Because, again, you know, if the if the leadership negotiates a, a 10 or 20% wage concession, it's not going to hit in their paychecks. They're not going to get hit by it. It's going to be the rank-and-file on the line that loses that every single week, day in and day out, and that while the union continues to go on, and while they continue to get their, you know, union cars and the paychecks and all the benefits and all that shit. So that's a long way of arguing of answering your question. I think mm-hmm. you're like, I wasn't paying attention for half of that.
0: Well, I was looking at uh, a little bit more of this article about the two tiered system. Yeah. I, I noticed that uh, Chrysler workers voted no against the two tier system and GM skilled trade workers voted no against the two tier system, but production workers voted yes by 58%. So to, to what extent is the strike now about uh, reversing that that vote i
1: think it's a, it's very important i mean that's um, that 's something that the the union and the rank and file and the interviews that i 've read in the press releases have talked about is um, finding some way to bring it back to one tier find a way to close that gap between $15 an hour that some 22-year-old's making and the $31 an hour that the 45-year-old is making. Um, They obviously feel solidarity towards these people that work next to them, and that's one of their main sort of demands is to get rid of this second tier. Um, You're reading an excellent Labor Notes article that I read before this that we should definitely link to, and it talks about another structural issue with the UAW in general, I'm sorry, in particular, but also unions in general, Uh, which is the way that the union has been uh, negotiating uh, this particular contract Um, as gm is asking for concessions from the uaw um, apparently the workers and their delegates have had very little to no information about how these negotiations were going in fact the union didn't make a single pin for the strike. They didn't make a single sign for the strike. They were very disorganized. They were very unprepared to mobilize the 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 membership of the union in order to do anything about it, uh, which means a serious lack of communication between the the head and the body of this union. And what the labor notes uh, article points to, like you said, Chrysler workers voted no to the second tier. The skilled workers at GM voted no to the second tier. Right. Um, that was because the rank and file realized that um, they needed to organize themselves. They did that against the leadership, right? That's what the leadership had negotiated for them. They said no. Uh, They did that because they realized that their interests were separate from that which was in the contract, that which was being negotiated for them. So in both of those instances, it was a grassroots effort to stop the second tier, right? To say "We, we, we don't want this. This will not happen. And in both cases, when the workers voted no, they ended up getting concessions for the company and not giving up that. Right? So it's really the rank and file and their self-organized power. They were creating uh, Facebook groups. They were sending out massive text chains. They were having meetings at like local coffee shops and bars to tell people, look, this second tier is bad. We should not be doing this. And it worked. Of course, they had to go essentially against the leadership, but it worked. So that's a real big lesson for this, right, is that uh, it's really the power of the rank and file that's important at the, in the last instance.
0: And, and so, so the fact that there's a strike now that the UAW has endorsed and and called, does that mean that they've got this message as well and now they're starting to push back against the two-tier system?
1: I think, I think that that, yeah, the fact that that is on the table, uh, I don't think getting rid of it entirely is on the table, but mitigating it and finding a pathway for people out of that second tier, I think that does show that they, they realize how, how, how crucial of an issue this is uh, for the workers uh, on the line um, to not have this breakdown of solidarity and also not have increasing uh, numbers of the workforce be left behind, you know, while the old people retire out you know, what are they leaving? What are they leaving for the next generation of workers? And I think, yeah, they're they're recognizing how important that is. Maybe they saw what happened with Chrysler. Maybe they saw what happened with the skilled workers, you know, last time, and they realized how important this issue is.
0: Yeah, the cigars are not going to be as affordable if the union dues that they collect go down.
1: That's right, yeah. That's just economics, folks. Mm -hmm. Econ 101, union dues to cigars. You've heard of uh, 10 yards of linen equals 10 10 yards of linen. One cigar equals two union dues. You heard so it here first.
0: In these smoky, uh, cigar smoke-filled rooms, boardrooms where the uh, the union fat cats and the GM fat cats are meeting, uh, they're they're trying to strike some some deal where the company can still come out on top. The company can be viable, um, and the worker, and uh, you know something works out between labor and capital, where everything continues to function smoothly despite these massive profits and despite the coming repression but the workers the rank and file have a right to vote on these contracts and they voted no and they also have the ability if the uaw gives them these unfair deals or sabotages them in some way to have a wildcat strike and there has been some speculation that the militancy and anger amongst the rank and file against the union leadership may be leading to that sort of situation
1: I would I mean That's I would kind love of what th- we always say. I would love to see it. <laughs> yeah, we say that all the time. Yeah. Um there the the two three things that have been exciting just in the last day and the situation might change by the time this is out or by the time you're listening to this at home. But um the Teamsters, who actually move the vehicles from the factories off to the dealerships or the distribution hubs or whatever, are respecting the picket line. Mm. So this is their way of actually kind of doing a secondary boycott, right, or a sympathy strike, is that they, are, uh, they have the right to not pass a, a, a picket line. So that means the vehicles which uh, General Motors has been warehousing in anticipation of this strike— as of right now, are not making it out to the dealerships. Nice, that's very nice. powerful. So the Teamsters supporting uh, the UAW classic. classic. So that's kind
0: of messed up because working class people need to go and buy a car <laughs> every week. How are they going to buy a car if the dealerships are empty?
1: Uh, well, it's funny you say that because... Um, I read some dumb, dumb fucking like CS, CSNBC uh, article this morning or MSNBC, whatever the fuck that business CSNBC channel is. CSNBC
0: is a good combo of just <laughs> that that style of bullshit.
1: Yeah, it's that, it's that style of bullshit um, where they were like, the average uh, car company has a 60, 60 day uh, supply of cars, uh, you know, in case something should happen. But GM has 77 days. You know, they're very fortunate in that instance. No, they're not fortunate. They recognize that the union was going to strike them and not one of their competitors and they did what companies often do when they know a strike is coming is they stockpile materials so the company has a 77 day buffer right even if like working class people need a new Eldorado or whatever right they've got 77 days of those shitty cars in order to sell and that's a way for them to continue to make profits while the workers are on strike Mm -hmm. the other thing that was exciting that happened was um the janitor strike that we talked about earlier i mean that's really cool right so the UAW, as an industrial union, organizes people within that industry, no matter what they do. Right, those skilled workers we were talking about, who are probably welders or you know r- run some really fancy machines, they are under the same negotiating, the same contract as uh, workers who simply turn a screw, you know, on an assembly line all day, installing screw a, turners. Screw turners, yeah. You know, it, we, they do not have an individual screw turners union, uh-huh. right? They are all under under one uh, umbrella. But it's really cool to see the, uh, again, janitorial workers who probably make way less and their life chances aren't as great, uh, to see them uh, standing in solidarity with the others. And then the last cool thing that happened, not quite a wildcat strike, but it shows some serious workers' militancy, and it is also, I believe, against the law, is uh, early this morning... Uh, the on the picket lines, the, uh, the line workers were blocking white-collar workers uh, who also work in the factories that they work in, blocking them from entering the parking lot. Apparently, some of these people, it was taking them two hours in order to get to work in the morning, which means a hard picket, right? Which mm-hmm. means actually blocking the operation of this by blocking those pencil necks from trying to, like, go in and, uh, I don't know, uh, check your productivity on some weird Taylorist uh, productivity device.
0: Yeah, th- this is an important distinction that a lot of listeners might not know because they, we might be familiar with uh, picket lines where you're in a, you know, a fenced-in area and you're marching in a circle with slogans and signs. You know, that's fine. That's part of it. But a hard picket is the, you know, what the concept of picketing initially was, which w- is you're blocking the building, you're blocking the gates of the factory or the doors of the school. And if somebody's getting in, you're not necessarily going to beat them up or fight them, but you're, you are you are going to stand shoulder to shoulder with your fellow workers, And not let them in. And it becomes a struggle. Uh, Sometimes it has to be a struggle to let people know we're not just we're not just guilting you. We are blocking you. We are shutting down this factory. And, you know, that's usually in the United States uh, where the police will intervene and start arresting people.
1: Yeah, uh, replacement workers will be brought in, as they call scabs nowadays. Uh, you know, companies across all, all the all the industries in the United States uh, have uh, many different ways that they've devised using consulting firms and lawyers in order to break, you know, not just strikes, but also unions. And um, that hard picket, to see that come back is uh, is a pretty incredible thing. I don't think it's going to last, right? Because as you said, the police are going to start escorting these people in. But it does show that these workers, maybe because it's a generational thing, it's I I don't know, a kind of institutional memory within the UAW and Flint, Michigan and Detroit, that area, uh, they recognize that the point of a strike has always been, and part of the reason why strikes have been less effective, has always been to withhold labor power from capital, right? Without our brains and muscles, not a single gear can turn, right? Uh, that is from Solidarity Forever, but that is the point of a strike, right, is that you shut the shit down, and you can't shut it down if you're not in some way blocking the flow of that most important commodity that exists, which is human beings' ability uh, to work, right, Uh, their their uh, wage labor as a commodity. So, yes, like, that aspect of the strike... It has to be brought back at a certain point. You have to make capital pay. If they're going to take it out of your ass, you have to come right back and take it out of theirs. We're pretty far from from that, but it is a place and a direction we need to start uh, looking towards.
0: And... You know, neither of us are in Detroit yet. We'll be there in a, yeah. a matter of moments. But, the, uh, the,
1: bus, the, the, the bus leaves in like a half right. hour, so, yeah. Uh,
0: but uh, it, do you get the sense that there's a, uh, you know, with the political crisis that we have in the United States, despite the economy doing well, but the, the, this recession coming and this sort of apocalyptic atmosphere of the country today, do you get a sense that there's a larger uh, uh, desperation amongst workers that might push them to take some more risks? Or do you think that this is going to be kind of the way we've seen strikes unfold over the last 20 years?
1: I mean, that's uh, that's the million-dollar question. Um, the $20 million question. $20 million. You become CEO, if you answer that correctly. I'm going to be the CEO of GM, if all goes well in this episode. Um, yeah, no, I mean, God. It is fair to say at this point that the last year and a half, uh, at least the last 12 months, in the United States has been something of a surge in strike activity in the United States. Of course, it started, as we all know, and we did episodes about this with the teacher strikes, began in West Virginia and then spread all over the country. You also saw uh, in the last year hotel workers uh, in various different chains uh, have almost nationwide strikes you know, all over the country. This was four or five months ago. And, of course, early in the summer, I believe it was, you saw um, stop-and-shop workers all throughout New England go on strike. It became just stop. Just stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the other thing about a strike, right? You can stop people from shopping. Mm. You know, stop and shop. Um, stop from shop. So...
0: Thousands of Green Pointers <laughs> starved to death <laughs> in that strike.
1: Listen, it's all part of the struggle. You know, you got to starve a couple of uh, eggs to make an omelet.
0: No pierogies for anyone. No,
1: no pierogies, no sausages. Uh, yeah, what was I saying, you bastard? Oh, no, no, I was saying that um, this last year it saw more days lost to strike activity. Uh, as measured by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, that the, the, the most recent time that we saw this much was in the 1980s. So we are back 35 years in labor history now, you know, to when the labor movement, till the private sector still had one out of every five members, uh, I'm sorry, workers in a union, as opposed to one out of every 10. So with that said, the UAW workers um, are part of this wave, and I have to imagine that they They feel that wave. They're obviously aware of. Many of them are aware of what's happening around the country. And you talk about this desperation and this anxiety. I mean, that is just all over our politics and our culture right now, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody, you know, even uh, even somebody on on the line in uh, you know, in Flint, Michigan, whose um, eyes have been burnt by slag from welding, or uh, you know, their ears blown out from uh, I don't know, uh, using the hair dryer too long at home.
0: Even they're tweeting
1: from tweeting (laughs) yeah um even I think I think that this sense of like of quiet desperation is turning into a, a real frustration uh, that's expressed itself in many different ways. But I think that you cannot divorce the strike wave that we're seeing right now and which the UAW strike is a part of. You can't divorce that from the rest of what's happening in the economy and in the culture and in politics right now. I think we're starting to see some movement of the class. And so when you say like, oh, is this going to turn into this militant struggle? Is there going to be more hard pickets, wildcat strikes or whatever? Yeah. That's it. Like, we want that to happen, right? Because, you know, that's our bread and butter here uh, as, you know, socialist, communist, anarchists. You always want to see it. You'd love to see it, in fact. Um, but I think the more interesting question is how does this little blip right now turn into something more than that and uh, this wave sort of crest? And that might take f- 5, 10, 15 years, right? In order to regain even the militancy of the Why 1970s. Now? Can't have it now. You can't have it now. Unless, uh, unless that joke about, like, the People's Revolution starting and, uh, and this strike was correct and all our super soldiers go down to Michigan, they occupy and take over the Fago factory, spike all the Fago with LSD, spread it to all the workers, and then they just really fucking wild out, and then the rev happens. I mean, it's possible, but you, you might have to wait. You might have to wait.
0: You, they're going to have to wait until we talk about Facing Reality <laughs> and uh, CLR James. Yes. That's what they did, yes. essentially.
1: The workers are always waiting for Swampside Chats. <laughs> that is, this one thing I know about the working class is they are waiting to listen to Swampside, as, as we all are, really. So
0: speaking of Swampside Chats, yesterday I, I was at a Minima Moralia reading group with Grants from
1: Swampside sort of Chats. Oh, so Grant made
0: it? Hopefully we'll be doing a little mini-episode about that. But, uh, you know, Adorno was saying some kind of negative things about... uh about modern life and was he really and the struggle and unions and such. And do you, so uh, I was kind of blackpilled or. Oh, uh, no. And, and we should be somewhat skeptical of of labor relations in this country because they have not produced anything resembling a socialist restructuring uh, since the New Deal. Um, but uh, as a historian, what should we be looking out for and what can we do? Seriously, what can we do to push things forward as far as they can mm-hmm. go?
1: It's important in an individual capacity if there is a um, an outside strike fund, because the UAW, of course, has their own. Workers will be getting money from the union. It's $250 on strike. a week. Yeah, it's so. plus unemployment. That's really, really yeah. not much. So if you have the opportunity to donate money, of course, we hate money, but money helps people a lot. You could do that. If you live in, you know, within, I don't know, 50, 100 miles of one of these picket lines, you know, if you have the time and the energy to do it, it would be a great thing to go down there. Whenever there's, uh, you know, a strike or pickets in the city, I grab pizza, I grab donuts, I grab, uh, you know, one of those big things of coffee. And you watch the
0: pickets and you cheer on.
1: <laughs> and I eat all the donuts myself <laughs> yeah. and say, go workers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so you can bring some food and solidarity down to the picket line. I mean, the least you could do is honk your horn as you go past. Uh, but of course, you know, you see a lot of people, I saw a lot of people today, you know, sending nice tweets out into the ether it's like okay cool you tweeted your support for them bernie sanders did that elizabeth warren did that uh jacobin magazine did that dsa did that i actually saw uh, maybe the only piece of kind of like real material activity on the broader socialist left, uh, DSA Detroit actually has a text chain that you can sign on to where they will you know give you information about where DSA members are meeting up in order to go down to the lines as socialists uh, wearing their DSA gear and engage with the workers and show their support that way, which of course is more powerful in a, in a collective capacity. So socialists all over the place should be thinking about doing that. Um, and I guess, like, uh, more importantly, and this gets to, like, a I think something that interests me a lot right now about not just this strike wave in general, but this UAW thing, right? Because it's big news. and You know, 50,000 workers. It's, uh, you know, all over the pages of the newspaper and blah, blah, blah. When this happened, the last strike in 2007, when the UAW went out for two days, I think— um, there was not something that approximated the beginnings of a mass anti-capitalist sort of movement in the United States. I'm not saying we have that now, but with the growth of the DSA, with the, grow- the growth of a lot of socialist groups, with, of course, the rise of socialist candidates to local and state office, and... Bernie Sanders, of course, national office, talking about the working class, talking about class struggle, putting proposals forward that have a class character to them, whether we think they go far enough or not. Right, they have a class character to them. They are galvanizing in that sense. Right, with all of these things happening, this particular situation we live in right now, I will be very interested to see the way that socialists, uh, groups, and individuals, and also even you know, articles and things people talk about, how we relate to this strike, right? How we relate to this movement, what do we do? Uh, What do we say? How do we start thinking to ourselves the next strike we could be doing this or we could even prepare ourselves next time for there to be a strike, start making these connections beforehand, you know, start to actually enter, it's hard if you're outside the rank and file, right? But enter the conversation at least, right? And start to, you know, again, think about and also doing various things that could uh, bring us closer to the class when it is in struggle and uh you know i don't know how that's going to pan out i don't know exactly what's going to happen but i think it's a very interesting moment right now because you have these things converging
0: yeah so we you know the, the horizon in general in the united states is sort of unclear we might be having a, uh, a democratic president perhaps a socialist democratic president and uh, as soon as he gets inaugurated, there will be a gigantic recession <laughs> and a fascist coup.: I thought you were going to say general um, strike, but that's way more likely yeah. Uh, So yeah, what, what do you see on the horizon if we do uh, have this kind of political shift towards the left in the country and you know in, or if we see the re- and or if we see the return of the kind of 2008 recession?
1: Well, going back to 2008 is the right idea because, uh, as we talked about before, The federal government under uh, Obama and the Congress, they gave GM something like $50 billion. They gave Chrysler, I think, $10 billion, and they gave Ford about $6 billion. But GM got the most money. The U.S. government in bailing out General Motors at one point in time in 2008, 2009, held 61%. Of the shares in the company, which communism. Meant, yes, that means communism. <laughs> communism means um, Fago and electrification, Soviet power and Fago. Um, the uh, the essentially what you have had was the nationalization of the auto industry in the United States. Of course, it happens under that milk toast professorial lib. Barack Hussein Obama, who did absolutely nothing with it, except uh, I guess he did something like kind of, it's fine, it's okay. He like forced them to increase their fuel standards and forced <laughs> them to like do more electric cars. Like, that's fine. That's like the most liberal thing in the world, right? Like, yeah. we nationalize the auto industry and make sure your fuel efficiency is twice as good in 10 years. And that's the audacity
0: of hope. <laughs> right.
1: Um, the, uh, when the, when the government, when, when Barack Obama did that, right, you have to understand that this um, $500 billion a year industry was in the hands of, again, the state. Any number of things could have been done. Uh, what the Obama administration did was those things I just talked about but they also basically like guaranteed the workers pensions uh, and their their health insurance for you know the future right but they also essentially said to the UAW workers like you're going to take a hit for this. Uh, Tens of thousands laid off You had tons of factories closed in the United States, all this excess capacity from when GM, Ford, and Chrysler were building a ton of like Hummers and other sort of SUVs as gas prices went over $3 an hour. Remember that right before the recession? All this excess capacity. And um, you know, a million things could have been done um, if you had a Bernie Sanders presidency, and this is interesting, right? You would need not just Bernie Sanders to be president, but you would also, I think, need what would the only thing that would make a Bernie Sanders presidency uh, useful and effective, which would be uh, a mass militant uh, rising labor movement. Right. Um, You could do any number of things in that instance. Right. If 2008 were to happen again, you could, um, you know, put. Workers on the board of directors right the UAW similar to what happens in Germany and Japan and elsewhere The UAW could sit on the board of directors as like one-third of the leadership of GM and make decisions alongside Capital, right? I mean that's kind of corporatist and weird when we think about it as like communist but like that would have a huge effect on the way that the auto industry ran um you could imagine in the farthest farthest reaches maybe this is more corbin than bernie sanders right but like turning it into a workers cooperative (laughs) Mm -hmm. like actually like worker managed and directed industry right i mean it sounds insane but you could turn it into a co-op essentially um you could um liquidate capital uh guillotine the ceos and uh make uh, Michael Moore, the leaders of the uh, Detroit Soviet Republic, <laughs> and uh, Bernie Sanders could invite him to the White House to have Michael Moore cut his own head off. You know Bernie Sanders would be like, "Come down to the White House. The proletarian revolution is over. You're coming here from Detroit in order to set up the guillotine so you could chop off my head for the working class." Yeah. Thank you, Michael Moore.
0: I'm a millionaire, and you know what you got to <laughs> do to me
1: all the millionaires and billionaires are lined up in front of you, Michael Moore. This is not a time for you to make a documentary. This is a time for off with their heads. Thank you.
0: That's beautiful. Whack. The United States just becomes like a midsummer society <laughs> where if you earn a certain amount of money, you just gleefully start drawing Sharpie on your neck.
1: It's like, like Logan's Run, but instead of like with yeah. old people with rich people. Wow. And they would love it, too. They would like be ready for it. Like, I'm about to make a million dollars. I get the choppy chop soon. Oh, that's great. I'll come by for the party afterwards. It'll be great. Like, yeah, cool. I, I like this dark uh, communist uh, future that we've imagined. You're so black-pilled right now for there being a massive strike happening. But, hey, that's fine. Adorno does that to people.
0: I mean, there shouldn't be cars. So there should why, not why are we be cars. Why supporting these people who are destroying the planet?
1: That's a great fucking point uh there shouldn't be cars maybe you just take the auto industry and you just turn it into a train industry and we yes. get all the trains we want everybody gets their own train your own fucking train we're not talking just a car like your own train engine your own cars to just go your anywhere. own tracks it will not be chaotic at all when everybody has their own railroad tracks <laughs> it will be a socialist horizon that we can all hat. yeah That is a future I could get behind, man. Yeah, you could eliminate the auto industry completely. That's like another interesting thing about the strike right now is that, I mean, it's it's a positive thing, and actually, thanks Obama. We can thank him for what happened 12 years ago in some weird, small yeah, say, way. Say
0: thanks, Obama, but sincerely, <laughs> not double sarcastically like people normally say.
1: <laughs> thank you, Obama, sir. Hey, thank you,
0: Obama. Thanks.
1: <laughs> I'm not gonna do my Obama impression, but that's fine. Uh, yeah, no, uh, the electric cars thing. Like apparently. The other side of GM having $8 billion in profits last year is that they're about to face their largest fixed capital investment of the history of the auto industry because more and more of these companies are looking towards electric vehicles, you know, getting off of the gas-powered engine, um, which is good. You know, that's a positive thing. That's fine. It's not the same as abolishing cars, but, like, I feel like we need to do that if we're going to save the climate, right?
0: But what about the lithium in Chile?
1: Uh, we're going to have to mine asteroids for that. You should talk uh, to Aaron right, Bastani. Right. He's got some plans. Go up there into space and get some asteroids.
0: Well, I heard on uh, Poddam America interviewed, I don't remember her name, Thea something. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but she claims that you can get those lithium from places where, like, nobody lives and it's cool. Is, like, is that true? There's like lithium that's just lying around <laughs> that you can just like go grab.
1: Why is it worth so much money if it's just sitting there on, know, a, on the floor?
0: Huh. You know, lithium is also good for bipolar. Yes, so like bipolar. You can chomp on some lithium.
1: Very relaxing, folks at home. If you're anxious right now, listening to this podcast as we talk about strikes, open up your phone, get a hammer or a screwdriver, whatever you need, crack open your phone, <laughs> take that little battery and just put it under your tongue like a little wafer. And I guarantee you, within 10 minutes, something will happen.
0: And try to make a car battery out of weed.
1: <laughs> After you've made a car battery out of weed, please send the directions for this new invention to antifaunamindset at gmail.com, and we will totally not steal that idea and make $20 million from it.
0: I mean, the way people talk about CBD, it's, it's like perpetual motion can't be too far behind us. <laughs>
1: I like how like we just have half half of the like the active ingredients w- in weed. They just separated them now, and it's like the best thing of all time. It's like we already had this big big CBD.
0: Israel. Oh,
1: is that really true? Yeah. yeah. Wow. So uh, if we really did BDS, we could not get high That's on right. CBD anymore. Right. How would we podcast if we didn't take CBD?
0: I'm not on CBD right now. Are you?
1: I'm not. No, but I love to podcast on CBD.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've got, you're you charging two joules right now on your laptop. They are both, I assumed one of them was going to be CBD. No,
1: they are both uh, nicotine and oil, and that's not even the type that uh, makes your lungs turn into popcorn and uh, your throat burn until you die, like happened in the news recently.
0: Okay, so failing this uh, self-decapitation go, of yeah. the American elites, failing that, what can we do to move to the next stage How do we push the legal confines that's keeping capital and labor so symbiotic?
1: Um, That symbiosis really started to break down in the seventies and eighties. Again, go back to the episode we did with Matt and Virgil on that, uh, talking about that crisis and what it meant for organized labor. Um, Capital started to become uh, more parasitic off the host, which of course is the working class at that point in time. But you're right uh, within the legal framework as it exists right now of labor law in the United States and institutions of labor such as they exist. There is a sort of stasis, you know, there is a sort of way that organized labor and big capital, you know, can get along. Maybe there's a strike of 50,000 workers every four years or so, right? But it is fundamentally not a threat to the system whatsoever. It's great for those 50,000 people, of course, and their families who are, uh, you know, getting more from their bosses and uh, hopefully more out of life from that. Of course, we want all working class people to get more money from their bosses and better benefits and all that stuff. But fundamentally, the labor regime as it exists in the United States, as it has for, for, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years at this point in time, is a dead end. It is a cul-de-sac uh, for all you anti-capitalist uh, militants out there.
0: And all you suburbanites who live in cul-de-sacs. You know what those are like.
1: Horrible. C- cul-de-sacs are horrible. Get out of the cul-de-sac is the point, right?
0: Just get on a road that goes all the way to another road.
1: Better yet, get on a train. Get on a train powered by weed. Get on the weed train, all right? The choom train. The choom train. What is the choom train? Chom choom. Yes. The choom train is all the militants out there recognizing that these labor laws, such as they exist, that allow the UAW to exist, right, that allows GM, you know, to uh, essentially... Use the union as a way, as a broker for the labor power of these workers, right? Uh, in order to shut down strikes and other militant activities, in order to have a more productive workforce which they can make more profits on, right? That entire system is old, all right? It goes back to 1935 with some revisions in 1947 and the 1970s, right? That regime is a dead end. We know this because in the 50s, one third of the private sector workers were in unions, and now, what is it, one-tenth, all right? If we're lucky, one-tenth are in unions. So even by its own, you know, by its own logic, the system is failing the working class broadly, right? It's only assholes like owned me and those people in Flint, Flint that have logic. unions, you know? Huh?
0: The system's owning itself by its own logic. It is owned by it its it own logic. not know how bad it looks right now. <laughs>
1: There's a whole body of law, and uh, there are many institutions, labor relations institutions that exist right now, as a sort of perpetual motion machine for the continuation of the National Labor Relations Act and uh, the Taft Harley Act after it, right? But these really are dead ends, and the only way. And I'm not saying this because I'm a fucking ultra, although I kind of am. I'm not saying this to be edgy. And I'm certainly not saying this to be utopian or provocative. Literally, literally, the only way that things have ever gotten better, that the system has ever been changed for the positive, for the American working class, or the European working class, or the Asian, or African, or even Australian working class, right, is the militant self-organization and self-activity of the working class. What was, what was the motor, what was the engine that drove the struggles of the 1930s? It was a militant, organized, working class, ready, prepared, and willing to break the law, to go up against the law such as that existed in the 1930s and say, no, we are going to have hard pickets, we are going to have solidarity strikes, we are going to have general strikes, we don't give a damn about these structures that you set up, we are going to organize for our lives and we're going to fucking win. They did that, and they forced the U.S. government to basically accept the fait accompli, which is that workers' power had organized tons of industries in the United States and changed the political economy of this country, right? Created a stability in unions like the UAW, right, where workers went from being laid off half the year to working overtime the you know the other half of the year to a job where for two generations, from the 1930s all the way up to the 1970s, 1980s, you could get a job at a GM, Ford, or Chrysler factory under United Auto Workers contract, and you would... Work there for 25, 30 years, and you would retire, and you knew that you did not have to worry about that for the rest of your life. You would have good benefits, you would have a good wage, be able to send your kids off to college if that's what you want, be able to have a car or two, right? You could have that American dream. Now, the problem, right, it's similar to that Jefferson quote where uh, the the tree of liberty needs to be watered with the blood of uh, working class militants, right? That's what Jefferson said. The problem is that when... This labor regiment uh, was created by that militancy of the working class. It only took capital 50 years in order to break that. And once capital was it was able to figure out, business was able to figure out figure out how to break the unions through replacement workers, through legal means. Right? Um, it was open season. And now we're fucking almost as far back from the height of organized labor in this country, right, as we are from when it began, right? If you're talking fucking the uh, 1930s, you know, all the way till now, we've been losing for a lot longer than we've been winning, all right? So I'm not being ultra, I'm not being utopian. We have to see, if we're going to see the working class of this country literally survive, literally survive under these abject, horrific circumstances, you're going to have to start seeing the working class of this country looking... Um, at the unorganized worker next to them, as the worker next to them on the line, as an ally, right, instead of uh, an enemy. They're gonna have to see undocumented workers and migrants as allies and not as enemies. They're going to have to understand that their class position means that they're going to have to organize with people in their workplace and across industries and workplaces in order to make a better life for themselves. They won't be doing it necessarily because they're socialists or because they're communists, because they're anarchists. They will be doing it because always, this slumbering giant of the U.S. working class, it always comes back awake, and it always changes the rules of the game. We saw this in the 1970s with a massive wildcat strike wave that gave workers in the federal government the right to strike for the first time because, again, they made it a fait accompli. They made it so that they had to pass the laws to ratify what the working class had done already, right? So over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, right, you are not going to lead some massive workers' upsurge, right? You out there, we over here, right, are going to be little players in this larger sort of battlefield right now. As capitalism continues to decay, as politics continue to get wacky, and as climate change makes it so that if we don't have a green socialist transition in the next 20 years, we're all fucking dead. We will all be part of that and recognize that it is only through that self-organization, right, and through that uh self-activity of the working class that we can come up against these arcane and useless laws and if we're lucky or not even if we're lucky if we're not lucky we'll get a better labor regiment that exists uh than exists now right but if we're really really lucky we might actually be able to end this fucking thing we might be able to get out of this endless loop right of worker activity into capitalist attack, worker activity into capitalist attack, right? We may be actually finally finally able to break free from this, and this is the future that we should be looking for, to engage in these movements, to engage with the rest of the working class, to engage in strikes, to educate ourselves, and to understand that this sort of economic activity. These sort of collective actions on the part of the working class are the only thing that's ever changed society. So yes, vote for Bernie Sanders. That's great. You know, do that. I'm going to vote for him in the primary here in New York, even though I hate fucking electoral politics, right? But understand that Bernie Sanders can't be anything without a mass, mobilized and militant working class of which you are a part, unless you are the CEO of General Motors, in which case, off with your head.
0: I think uh, the CEO of General Motors actually recently died. How? Uh, well, you know, old age. His name is uh, Rico Kasich.
1: I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Can't go on thinking nothing's wrong.